just having a bit of a debate before about how you pronounce Zion. Um, I reckon if I took a vote here, I think uh, probably nine out of ten would say Zion, but Rod would say Zion. So. <laughs> <laughs> um. <coughs> so, Psalm 14, which actually we could have we could have read Psalm 53. It's almost identical. There's about two words different. Uh, I presume it. It was a bit like a, well, the psalm, the book of Psalms was several books of hymns, songs put together, so I assume that one of them got carried over with just slight changes. Um, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. In the NIV, it's got a little footnote down the bottom which is kind of quite relevant to this whole thing because uh, the fool... The way it's used in this psalm, and in fact in all the psalms, is, does not mean someone who's a bit um, stupid or a bit dumb. Um, or It doesn't even mean someone who's sat down and carefully reasoned things out and decided that they don't no longer believe in God. It, it actually, uh, in the footnote there, it says the, the word rendered full in the psalms denotes one who is morally deficient. Um, so, in other words, it's somebody who's living a corrupt life uh, which they know is against God's law and so to justify that they therefore say there is no God. So it's that kind of fool. Uh, it's not surprising that uh, people do that when, when uh, they're, they're sinning against the, the uh, almighty God that they'll therefore their way around it will be to say well he doesn't actually exist. It's rather like the, the man who says he doesn't believe in gravity because his bartering scales will keep reading too high. Uh, <laughs> you know, he'll get away with it for a while, but in the end, the reality will catch up. So uh, verse 1 says that these fools are corrupt and their deeds are vile. So atheism and corruption tend to go hand in hand. Uh, I mean, I don't doubt that atheists can live good moral lives, uh, but they have no reason to do so. Uh, so when, when push comes to shove, you know, they'll tend to go with, with what's good for them. And anyway, what is a moral life to an atheist? Uh, if, there, if there is no God, then anything could be moral. Uh, you know, Dawkins, Richard Dawkins bases his atheism on, uh, on, the, on science and the theory of evolution. Uh, if that's so, then uh, uh, it could well be a good thing to kill all your neighbours off so that your own genetics are advanced. Um, you know, this is the sort of practical atheism that the Nazis uh, were into. They wanted to get rid of people who they regarded as genetically inferior to themselves. And therefore, they saw themselves as advancing evolution. That That's where atheism inevitably leads to. You know, the, um, the uh, head of the Down Syndrome organisation in Great Britain recently put out a, an appeal to the government, to their government, to say we are being wiped out as a people, Down Syndrome people, because of, uh, of the testing that is available of foetuses and, and so they are being aborted. And in fact, in Iceland, the country has proudly announced that they have eliminated Down syndrome. They haven't done it by any sort of medicine. They've done it by killing them. 
And, uh, and Richard Dawkins says, well, you should be ashamed if you bring a Down syndrome child into the world because of all the unhappiness it causes. But how does he know that a Down syndrome person is less happy than he is? Most of the Down syndrome kids I know, the people I know, are very happy. It's kind of one of their characteristics, really. That's where it leads to. Very, very often it's those who consider themselves to be very wise and, and learned who are the prominent atheists in our society. And it's interesting that the, the, the thing they most despise is not perhaps what you would expect. They don't despise Islam, uh, despite all the issues that that's obviously causing for our uh, Western countries. The, the thing they despise is the cross, the message of the cross. It is foolishness to them. They're, they're like the Greek philosophers of Paul's day. What they wanted, what they want, is um, is is reasoned argument, and or what they see as reasoned argument, and and witty rhetoric. That's that's what they regard as important, and, and uh, is what we need. Not some poor Jewish man two thousand years ago dying on a cross, a criminal's death. That's just foolishness to them. And yet the Bible says it is the wisdom of God and that they are the fools. And, you know, all, all sin is folly. It is foolishness. When sin leads to atheism, professed atheism, and that then leads to corruption and that will often lead to the persecution of God's church. Because if you hate God, then you tend to hate his people. Shelley and I and Joe have been reading through uh, Revelation at home and uh, the letter to Pergamon, there's a guy called Antipas who gets mentioned because he, gets, he was killed. He was one of the early martyrs of the church. And apparently they killed him in the city of Pergamon by putting him in a bronze bowl and cooking him alive. Now, this, this is kind of where... If you take atheism to its logical conclusion, that's the kind of stuff that you need. When I was about 15, I was a fool. I, uh, I didn't study biology at school. Uh, I did physics and chem, but uh, my sister did biology, and one day I happened to read, I decided to have a read of the textbook, The Web of Life. I don't know if any of you remember it from school. I read the chapter on evolution, and I decided that I was so convinced by it that I decided that God didn't actually exist and I went and told my mum I didn't believe in God anymore so I wasn't going to church anymore and she just sort of shrugged and said, mm, all right, but, um, which was probably the right thing to say, I think, at the time. But, um, but by the time I was... Um, oh, well, at that time I actually wrote, a, I wrote an article. I was so convinced about all this, well, I said I was, that I wrote an article for the school magazine called Why God Doesn't Exist that... Uh, you know, we had some pretty radical lefty teachers at the time, but even they thought it was too much and they fortunately didn't print it. Um, <laughs> by the time I was uh, 18, I was kind of different fool. Um, I can clearly remember one night standing on the, under the veranda of the Karamalka Hotel about midnight on New Year's Eve um, and there was a raging thunderstorm. You know, it was one of those really, really frightening ones that John was talking about in one of the other psalms the other day. Um, 
lightning striking the ground all around us. It was very impressive, pouring rain. And it suddenly occurred to me, what would happen if I got killed now? And I thought, what would God do with me? And it was when I started to think about that, I thought, well, I actually, I don't actually not an atheist. I, I, I know there's a God. And it's like, like Rome, it says in Romans, I was just suppressing it because that's what people do. I, you know, I believe that that passage tells us that everybody knows there is a God, even those who say they don't and don't believe in him. They know. We just suppress it. So I became a different kind of fool and I took on a kind of pseudo-Christian morality just in case, you know, just in case there was a God, uh, in case it was true. It's interesting, isn't it, that there's nothing new in atheism. We, we kind of tend to think that it's a modern thing that science has done. But here, here we are in uh, 3,000 years ago, in David's day, it was, a, it was just as much a, a thing then. It's man's nature to deny God. The Lord looks down from heaven on the sons of men to see if there are any who understand, any who seek God, but all have turned aside. They have together become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Is anyone wise enough? Is anyone clever enough? Uh, does anyone have enough brain power to go looking for God, to seek after him? Does anyone want to know how he wants us to live? We might look around the church and the churches of this town and say, well, yes, look, there's people here who sought after God and found him. But God says, no, that's not how it happened. All have turned aside. They have together become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. And God, God himself is the chief witness here. He is the one looking down on the sons of men and the daughters. He's the chief witness for the prosecution. And he's saying that there is no, no one, not even one. And it kind of leads us to the Christian doctrine of, of that we call total depravity, that man as a whole, ever since Adam, because of Adam's sin and, and because of our own sin, is totally depraved. Now, that doesn't mean that we, that we do all the sin that we can, uh, that we're, we're as bad as we could be. And it, and it doesn't mean that we don't do any good. Uh, you know, clearly that's not so. But our wills and our minds, uh, in fact our very souls, are so affected by sin that we are by ourselves incapable of turning to God. And I think an honest look at our own experience will show that that is so. Um, has, has not God arranged your life and the people you know and the events that have happened, um, so that you would come to him. Has he not changed your mind? You might think that you changed it, but no, God has. Has he not changed your heart? You know, I hear atheists and sceptics saying, uh, well, if you're a Christian, it's just an accident of where you were born. If you were born in Australia or England or the US or whatever, you were, you were far more likely to be a Christian than if you were born in, in, in Saudi Arabia, say. But, but who was it who worked his will so that you would be born here? Um, you know, anyway, what about, what about countries like China where a delegation from the US visited there in the early 1970s and said there were no Christians left? Well, they thought there might be one in the whole of China. And look at it now, 100 million Christians, they say, in China. They weren't born into a Christian country. God works his will. 
And so from these verses and, and from many, many others in the, in the Bible, we can deduce that, that, that not only the doctrine of total depravity, but the doctrine of election is true also. Because if God says here through David and, and in other places that there are none who seek after him, none who do good, uh, none at all, and yet we can see that, well, here is his church. It's, it's full of people who profess his name and trust him. Well, then how can that be if there are none good except that God chose them? Some words of the Lord Jesus. In John's Gospel, a person can receive only what is given him from heaven. That's chapter 3. And in chapter 6, no one can come to me unless the Father enables My favourite from Matthew's Gospel in chapter 11. I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to children. Yes, Father, for this was your good pleasure. That's the only reason you're sitting here, that you're safe and secure in the gospel, is because, God, it was his good pleasure to choose you. And he's hidden these things from the wise and learned. That's what we read in Romans, that they, pro they proclaim themselves to be wise, but in fact they were fools. <laughs> ah. So, verse 4, Will the evildoers never learn? Those who devour my people as men eat bread and who do not call on the Lord. Well, who are these evildoers? Well, carrying on from earlier verses, they're those who hate God even to the extent of denying that he even exists. And hatred of God inevitably produces hatred of his people. Now, most people I know in this district, the people I sort of have day-to-day -day contact with, don't fit this category. Um, I mean, we're blessed to live in a time and place where the church is not hated. Uh, after all... You know, we this district has elected an openly Christian mayor, and a pastor no less, and, and an openly Christian prime minister. But during the same-sex marriage plebiscite, there were some alarming signs of hatred towards his church. Hatred of God produces persecution of his church, and, and we have seen it in the atheistic communism of the Soviet Union and China and most of all North Korea. The leaders of those countries denied or, or deny that there is any God except themselves, of course. And yet they know that God is there. We read that in Romans 1. They suppress the truth. So they hate anything that reminds them of that. And the church is saying, it's a visible expression of saying, yes, there is a God. The church is the visible sign on earth of Christ. And he is king. And the despots who run these countries don't want to be reminded that there is a higher authority than themselves. To one, one to whom one day they are going to have to give an account of their rule. Will evildoers never learn? Well, their track record is not good. And yet, the Soviet Union was, I believe, brought down by prayer. You know, in the, when the truth started to come out about the suppression of the church in the 1960s, there was massive prayer against, this, against the communist rule in the Soviet Union through the 70s and 80s. And nobody saw it coming. 
but then Gorbachev was became the the, uh, the prime minister of the Soviet Union, and and it just collapsed. The whole thing disappeared. No one saw that coming. Verse five. There they are, overwhelmed with dread. For God is present in the company of the righteous. They don't get it all their own way. Man, my uncle's fond of saying, man proposes and God disposes. God will not be mocked forever. He's patient and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. But a day of reckoning is coming. And a man can deny God exists as much as he wants, but that will make no difference at all to God. Uh, but I am... You know, personally, I'm very thankful that God was so patient with me that he didn't hold me to account for my youthful atheism. But that day will be one of dread for those who oppose God. Like a man who is condemned to be executed at sunrise, loudly telling everyone that the sun won't come up. It will. The day is coming. For God is present company of the righteous. In verse 5, yes, God is present in his church. Despite all her faults, God is present in his church. He loves her, he feeds her, he builds her up, he clothes her with the robe of righteousness. And so it is no wonder that those who hate the church will be full of dread. The people that they have oppressed and jailed and murdered and uh, they are the beloved bride of the king. This is happening all around the world. And I would not want to be in the shoes of those oppressors on that day. And yet, the Apostle Paul oppressed the church and yet God had mercy on him. And that's what the Lord Jesus tells us to do, of course, is to pray for those who oppress us. We are not to take action against them ourselves, we are to pray for them. And Paul says in, in 1 Timothy that God had mercy on him because he acted in ignorance. You know, there's a big there's a big let off there for for all of us really, isn't there? We act often we act in ignorance. Some people don't. But in the meantime, the, the wicked harass the church. In many countries the church is the poor there in verse 6. They have no help. Their countrymen and their, their governments despise them. I'm thinking India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, countries like that. And their only refuge is God God himself, says they there in, in verse 6. And only that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. That's what Israel longed for, for salvation. That's what they cried for. All the prophets, we see it in the Psalms, in Isaiah, Jeremiah... Ezekiel, um, Daniel, Job, all of the all the minor prophets, they cried out to the to the Lord for deliverance, for the Messiah to come, for salvation. And the Messiah came. Uh, he came to his own people, and they re- didn't receive him. They rejected him. But to those who did receive him, he gave power to become the children of God. We are the inheritors of that promise. Descendants of Abraham who believed the Messiah, as many of them did, they are the preeminent in God's church. 
We are the grafted-in branches, like poor children from the slums who suddenly inherit a castle. Only better. Castles fall down. So, you know, a 15-year-old schoolboy who stupidly shakes his fist at God, um, you know, kind of like jumping in to wrestle with a 20-foot alligator or something, you're not going to win. Um, I was chosen and saved and redeemed and sanctified and soon to be glorified. I was talking with Matt before about, you know, the practical implications of this, though, of living where we are. Because it seems to me that most of the people that I know um, don't really fit into the... You know, they're not saying... They're not shaking their fist at God and saying there is no God. But they're not actively worshipping him either. But then Matt was saying, uh, well, yeah, but in, in the Romans reading, it's either one or the other there. We either suppress the truth about God or we worship him. It's one or the other. And so when we look at... we do, you know, I tend to look at the people in this district, a lot of my friends and associates and people I, people I know, and uh, neighbours, those sort of things. They're good people. They, they're good to me anyway. Uh, but they're not, they're not worshipping God. And we need to bear that in mind, that, they're, that even though we think they're, um, they're good people, which they are, and I mean, as I say, they're good to me, um, they are still desperately in need of the gospel, just as we were. 